Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to the Odd Job Pod, a podcast where we focus on the adventures of Jezri Bonsky. So get yourself a hamper from Harrods. Don't forget to remove the uh, rather questionable brand of champagne from the list. Watch out for exploding milk bottles if you're listening over breakfast and get your cellos as the ready as we prepare to discuss the living daylights in the first of a Dalton double bill. I am Gary Andrews and uh, joining me as ever are Graham Sibley. Good evening, Graham. Hello, Gary. And Terry DeFellin. Good evening, Terry. Good evening, Gary, and uh, thank you for uh, stealing my uh, one-liners to input into uh, my introduction. But, uh... Yes, well, I, I, you know, I write all my own material. What can I say? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So, gentlemen, first of all, quick question. Um, I'm just checking. Up. We are all okay. We all recovered from the uh, emotional roller coaster that was no time to die. Just about. Yeah, it all seems like a while ago now, doesn't it, to be fair? So much has happened in that time. It's been an emotional few months coming to terms with the realities of uh, No Time to Die, and I'm anxious to find out what happens next. Me the same. I, I think it, it, it is, it, it's very telling that, we, that we've chosen to talk about in, in this episode a Bond's first episode, uh, a sort of a, a, a new Bond being introduced. And I wonder if that's a subconscious thing on our part, that we wanted to, to, to look ahead and see how the franchise introduces new actors into the role and how they take it and how they change it from what happened before. It is a good good one to talk about, especially after No Time to Die. And also, Terry, um, I think it's probably a, a good podcast as well, because... Um, part of me feels that what we have in the Dalton era, albeit a very short-lived Dalton era, and introduced in the Living Daylights and uh, and obviously continued into License to Kill, potentially set a little bit of where Craig could go to, given that how much it changed from the 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 jokey one-liners um, and and the slightly over-the-top elements of the Moore era into a slightly more gritty, realistic place. The Bonds kind of lived in and, and certainly gave Bond a little bit more, should we say, emo- I mean, let's face it, we all love Roger and, and he did have some great moments, but Dalton probably brought a little bit more emotional nuance to the role that Craig later has, has probably picked up in some places. Yeah, well, he imbued James Bond with emotion and Roger's, Roger's uh, Bond um, not, didn't lack emotion by any means, not at all. But he didn't necessarily uh, express it with, with a great deal of nuance. And I think that Tim Dalton, when he accepted the role, he said in uh, pre, pre-match interviews before the movie was out, he said he'd, he'd made a deliberate in, attempt to inflect, to, to inflect some of Fleming on there. He insisted on James Bond smoking cigarettes, for example, which is something that Bond hadn't done on screen since the 1960s and happily we're still at a point I say happily smoking is a filthy habit and you shouldn't do it but but we're still at a point in 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 our uh, island story where you know you can still get away with doing stuff like that smoking I mean it wouldn't be be allowed now the the little asides that he had the intense glares the you know the 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 fact that he was prepared to lose his temper get angry was something that we just hadn't seen there was a sort of savagery if you like about about the way that he went about some some of the things in this movie that Roger Moore never really got close to I mean maybe the closest might have been Man with the Golden Gun 
and that's rather unhappy sequence with Maud Adams in that man with the golden gun. But those Dalton scenes were much, much better finessed, uh, much better made. Uh, and, and, and so he certainly, he, he certainly he, he recognised that, that maybe Fleming's character had been forgotten a little bit by Roger. And I personally found it a breath of a, a, a huge breath of fresh air. Um, I love Roger Moore's movies, but at the time, um, I was weary of the Roger Moore movies I'd seen I'd obviously seen them and I'd seen them over and over again and I was and I'd read all the Fleming books and I was anxious to see a, what I considered to be a more authentic bond these are all opinions I held at the time and so when Dalton came along it was a huge breath of fresh air and I was extremely happy and it's one of the reasons why I, why, why I love this this movie so much it's not without its humor it should be said you know, within the first few minutes of the film, we've 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 got the reproduction of M's office and at the back of a of, of a Hercules just for the sake of a sight gag. So it, it, the movie still has has a fair share of wackiness about it that it, that isn't gone. So it's it's not all sort of like Craig era grit yet. Graham, I mean, I th- we we talk about that transition over. Obviously, what we've got here though is um is very much the, the kind of the same unit really that's still together and you've got a lot of the the production the direction you know the team is still there that's done the more era and one of the things i find kind of interesting about this is is obviously you've got that kind of grit in there and if there is one small criticism that i'll get in early it's that some of the lines that are written in this script have probably still been written with roger moore in mind and you don't have Dalton feeling quite as comfortable. Like you can imagine in the opening sequence where um, Dalton goes, better make it two hours. You could that that was a line that's made for Roger, not for Tim, really. Yeah, totally. But then again, mm. you can't see him landing on the boat or going through that scene in in in, in Gibraltar. It's part of the the uneasiness, I suppose, of of when you get a new Bond in, isn't it? You've still got all of the crew from the last ones they know all the set pieces they want to do all the stunts they think they can get away with or or what they can't and and it's really just getting everyone up to speed to a new a new bond a new guy in in the main role and it is such a departure it, it is so different from uh, view to a kill if you look at that opening scene with the fight in the jeep and to compare it to say like the um the fire truck chase and how how different those two scenes are you you get an idea that the of 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 the problems of of trying to keep the franchise going, keep make sure you everyone knows that they're still watching a Bond film, and yet not exactly reboot it, but give it a new lease of life, take it on somewhere, move it on somewhere. There was talk about about this being a reboot, do what they did with the with with the Craig uh, era, but obviously they didn't have the confidence in it then or maybe it just wasn't the right the right time to do it i don't think that there would have been the the sort of the appetite for it may maybe or maybe it was too big a risk something that that obviously by the time they get to daniel craig it's perhaps something they can see in other films that well actually look these guys are doing it yeah we're kings of the franchise movie. We should be doing this as well. So, so yeah, I I, I see what what you mean there, there Gary. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's a hell of a lot of the old faces here, which is a good thing. Uh, you've got you've got John Barry's soundtrack. You've got even Morris Binder um, doing the opening credits as well. So it it is does make you feel nice and comfy. It's a good solid '80s Bond film. 
isn't it? It's got all that lovely feel to it. The only difference is, is that Roger's not there. Rod, Roger is not there. And as you say, you could not see him certainly carrying off some of the uh, the stunts and probably some of the more brutal fight scenes with, with the aplomb that um, Dalton's done. And before we get into the film, Terry, I think it's probably almost worth just like taking a few minutes to discuss that what we we've got with the living daylights could have easily been so very very different because um dalton wasn't the first choice at that stage possibly not even the second choice given that um you obviously had rosnan uh, number one and and potentially sam neil even who i knew uh no lots of reports was that he he had really impressed in the screen test as well there, there is the the slight tragedy, and we'll discuss this when we come to the Pierce movies, I think, about that that, that this would have been, I think, a great time for Pierce to take over. Um, I, I mean, he would have been a, a much younger man, younger even than Tim Dalton, I think. He was in many ways made for that. And it is a shame because cause you're quite right, Gary, that this is, and Graham, this is a... This is a continuation of the existing franchise. This is like this is like the next one on from a view to a kill. There's no gap, really discernible gap between these movies in terms of tone, in terms of style, in terms of production values, in terms of scripting. And you're right to point out the one liners. I mean, like he just can't say salt corrosion and make it sound funny. Um, whereas Roger, Roger Moore would have done Roger Moore would have that that line would have worked with Roger if he'd said it. And he would have said better make that too a lot better. I mean, Tim just kept saying better make that to he overpronounced the t's it just didn't work these are these things are important so so it is a bit of a shame because when it came to goldeneye you know there'd been a gap in the franchise while you know eon had worked through some legal issues uh, not for the first time and so there was a break and then and and it that almost felt more like a reboot whereas this would have just simply been pierce just sliding into the into the car it's already humming it's already working and 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 that would have been quite something uh, sam neil the loss of sam neil as james bond is a genuine tragedy he is a colossus of an actor and he would have been amazing i couldn't really tell you how um and it's possible that he may have been even more challenging to the role than tim dalton was but all of that says um you know, I I don't I wouldn't want to live in a world where there were no Tim Dalton, James Bond. Amen to that. I will I will definitely agree with that. And and Graham, I mean the most obvious thing that whilst ev- the gang's still together, this is a continuation. We have something that is probably very very unusual for Bond, uh, certainly after the the Moore eras, in that it is grounded very much in a level of reality that we've probably not seen for quite some time. It is. But it's the sort of reality that you get in Fiora's only, isn't it? it? It is that sort of grittiness, but then it's also got the ludicrous stuff as well because you've got to go into Q Branch and you've got to go and have a look at all the lovely gadgets and everything. And he gets an Aston. He gets a beautiful Aston Martin with all the whistles and bells on it, on it as well. So, yeah, it is grounded, but then it is also very much in the spirit of, of the 80s Bond films. And I, I think because it draws itself in, because it makes itself grittier, and it's easy to say this with, with with hindsight, but it almost loses track of what's going off outside of it. And this is why the next film is a complete change of pace, because while they're drawing in and becoming grittier, the rest of the genre is going bigger, brasher, more outlandish, bigger explosions, bigger body counts. And going completely nuts. It's it's gone completely sort of post eighties 
feel about it. The, the big action movie, big action blockbuster is is there um, 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 waiting. And this is what uh, The Living Daylights doesn't do. The Living Daylights lives well within its 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 remit. I mean, there's, don't get me wrong, there's, there's loads of great set pieces in this. But when you compare it to what Hollywood starts to do and th- that whole sort of passageway up to True Lies, and there's 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 a couple of, of links here with, with True Lies, isn't there? Well, Art Malik being the, the most uh, the most um, obvious one here. And also Die Hard as well. You've got you've got a link there, direct link with one of the actors here as, as well. So all those big 90s, late 80s um, action blockbusters. And you can see this is where James Bond starts to play catch up a bit, I think. It's also interesting as well that, again, after the kind of, you know, and, and let's be fair, we, we have some quite over-the-top stuff in the Moore era, probably with the exception of the slightly more more muted and, and thoroughly enjoyable for your eyes only. Uh, go back and listen to our pod and rewatch if you haven't, because um, I think you'll find a lot of love for that. But but Terry, when Dalton talks about return to, to the roots of Fleming, you've also got the fact that this is an action film. But probably first and foremost, it's a spy movie. It's a proper spy movie with defections and double crossing and you're not quite sure who to trust. And my personal opinion is that this is all the better for returning to a spy roots that Bond started out at. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I mean, the, 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 from the moment you saw the Spionin reference in the pre-credit in the cold open, I mean, I was just overjoyed when I saw that. I just thought, I just thought this is fantastic. It's obviously massively across the Fleming novels and so thinking, you know, this is going to be a, like a much more of a, of a spy thing. And then, you know, they come out of the credits and where do we go? Prague, Prague, you know, Cold War Prague. I mean, like it's, it's, it's fantasy land for me. I mean, and things in, evolve in that that way i mean it, it's 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 got its humor it's not exactly you know harry palmer but i mean it's still rocking that same vibe it's very very agreeable it's not something that we've got used to they the bond franchise used spectre as a lot of 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 movie franchises and tv shows did or not a lot because there weren't that many to begin with but it was quite common for the kind of spy genre to invent a villainous criminal syndicate to fight against instead of the Russians because for some reason I think they just felt that it was just like not showing the right spirit and that we shouldn't be pointing the finger at the Russians as, as the enemy and and you don't get see so why there are there's plenty of Cold War fiction involving the Soviet Union of course in the, on the other end of the bond end of the scale on the t- entertainment end it tended to sort of like little be, be a little bit more out of that kind of sphere so it was it was nice to see the Soviet Union involved and the Russians in more directly involved as the so-called protagonists or antagonists rather, rather than sort of like either, you know, people standing by on the sidelines or, you know, or, or occasionally, you know, people teaming up with them um, or, or, or the maverick Soviet general, which of course we do love the maverick Soviet general as a, as a Bond trope. We do, we do love. And um, so, so yeah, I, it was, it was, it was great to, to, it was great to start that movie off in that, in that ground and go, you know, and it make it feel like a new, a new experience, a new James Bond film, even though, as we've just discussed in many ways, it's the same old (laughs) James Bond film. And again, it's quite nice, Graham, that you've got all this, double crossing and there's a there's a few highlights for me um 
we can discuss Koskov a bit, but before we even get to Koskov and when we talk about sort of antagonists and double crossing, I just want to talk that I really love Jonathan Rhys Davis's performance as Pushkin. Uh, that's one of the highlights for me of this film and the the interplay between them. And obviously you've got Koskov in there as well. And they don't really share any any screen time, but there's something just wonderful wonderfully brilliant about that kind of obviously it was meant to be Gogol um he does make a, a little cameo at the end but um yeah there's I, I'm whilst I'm sad that there wasn't a general go Gogol as in here um I'm very glad that it meant that we got a we got a Pushkin instead yeah brilliant the one thing I thought of though when I was watching on on this rewatch the the bit in the hotel room and it's the bit when he's lying out on the bed when he's been pushed back on the bed and just for a split second, I thought, wouldn't it have been great if they if they got him back for Goldeneye instead of Robbie Coltrane? Robbie Coltrane does a great character, does a great. But what if they took this character, Pushkin, after after the Cold War, where he's basically become a gangster instead of someone high up in 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 the government, and and actually gone through it there? It's as one of those little things that you you get in the that was probably chucked around the writers' room at some point, but then thought, now what's the point of doing that? We'll just get someone else in. We'll just start with a different thing. Um, but it, it's it, it's one of those sort of things because he does that. Oh, Jonathan Rhys Davis is brilliant, and he was he was doing. He's doing loads of stuff like well, um, obviously Raiders of the Lost Ark is is where where we know best from during the eighties. Cairo, City of the Living, a Paradise on Earth. <laughs> Which, um, Don't forget uh, King Solomon's Mind. Oh, as well. of course, I am pleased. I am pleased. No more Wagner. No more Wagner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, he wasn't expressing a, a, a tremendous range there by no means, but um, <laughs> he didn't have to. And even when he, he got to Gimli, to. he wasn't. But yeah, you know, no, you're right, Terry. He doesn't have to. It's, it, and, and as well, I mean, because he, he's got such screen presence, it's easy to forget that he's only. It's, it's about the same age as Dalton, isn't he? And but he, and, and that's why he's he's got he's had such a a fabulous like rich career and uh, no I mean it, it, you almost know as soon as soon as Jonathan Reese Davis turns up in the film yeah you, you're going to be all right and and yes Terry King Solomon's mind he is the best thing in that film isn't he <laughs> yeah I mean that is an absolute. Toilet brush I don't know. Movie. I don't know. Is it? I, is it wrong? Because like there is that bit when, when they're rolling, rolling down the hill. The young, in that big pot. the young Sharon Stone rolling, rolling down the hill yeah. is, is is quite entertaining. Yes. Um, <laughs> and Herbert Lom is in that film as well. Um, there's, I mean, it's it's everyone. Every, there's loads of really good people in that movie, but it, it's just a it's just an absolute toilet brush of a film. It just doesn't work at all. <laughs> I think uh, one of the things that struck me. Um, it didn't strike me because I think of it every time I see this movie. But I am always reminded. I, I keep, I kind of keep forgetting that Pushkin is in this movie, and then I came to myself, this guy should have been a, this guy should have been a regular. Yeah. This should not have been his only appearance in the James Bond franchise. He was brilliant, and John Rhys Davis. I mean, obviously, yeah, it's the kind of role that he could just like it's meat and drink to him. Yeah. I mean, you just like eased straight into it. This is the this is the glorious thing about character actors like John Rhys Davis is they they are so good at playing that kind of role that you you know that you just because you just give them the script and they'll be fine. They don't need to method them their way into that. They're absolutely safe as houses, and I think it's a real shame that we didn't that he, we didn't get to see him come back. Maybe if Dalton had continued, um, yeah, that may have been something that they would have done. 
But uh, but I think you're right, Graham. They may have felt that too much time has passed, and maybe they just didn't feel. I think quite a lot of people were down on the Dalton films at the time, mm. and maybe there was a feeling that they should try and yeah, move away from maybe. that. A little bit like on a mostly Secret Service. I think the Dalton movies. They've, there's a certain generation that looks askance at these films for various reasons. They only did two of them, and there is perhaps a perception that they that they weren't very good from people who don't pay much attention to these things um, and are often wrong about these things. But yeah, he was absolutely fantastic, and 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 and, and gold in almost every every second he was in that movie. It was c- completely memorable. I mean, the Tangier shooting was superb. You know, you know, and uh, it and this whole. I mean, it, Virginia Hay, who is is just <laughs> such a place, such a such a small role in it, but it's absolutely telling. I mean, there's a thing that struck me about she just absolutely sells all of the crap that's happening to her. All of this, so like, like you know, she's being threatened, she's being stripped naked, she's watching her her lover get shot, then come back to life, and then she's pulling it all off, and and we're completely buying her grief and shock and you know and everything and astonishment it's really really good and i, I, and, I mean yeah it's <clears throat> it's one of the highlights of, of this film and yeah the small amount of screen time that's on there is uh, is fantastic and i don't think anybody else buddy else could quite carry off the line in the diplomatic bag quite as well <laughs> as, uh, <laughs> as, as john reese davis does um so graham i guess if, if that's one of the the high points one of the criticisms that's leveled at living daylights and, and potentially not unjustly so is the uh, is the level of villainy in here that um i i mean we've obviously done the world cup of bond villains and you know i've, I've got a lot of time for koskoff but I don't think these are going to make anybody's top five list, shall we say, of Bond villains. No, no, not really. But then that's because there's so much level of betrayal and a misdirection in the film, isn't there? So you don't get time to build up a genuine hatred of a character. But if you do, then it suddenly turns out that they're not so bad after all. So that leads you into into having to have what, seem to be more sort of like tacked on ends or anticlimactic finishes and i suppose that's the real problem with with the living daylights is is it while it has a great great sequence where they've got the 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 sort of like cowboys and indians raid on 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 the on the airport um which is brilliant um that's that's as good as as any sort of big volcano sequence that you, you that you've got there in 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 the franchise the the whole sort of going around Whitaker's house and and making a mess of his toy soldiers doesn't really cut it as far as as far as big finales are concerned so so yeah i mean that the the villains aren't that great i think uh your own crabber is actually really good in it and in this film and uh, something i've noticed on the last couple of times i've watched it is is there is a bit of the Pierce Brosnan's about him in the way the way he comes across. You could you could certainly imagine Pierce Brosnan carrying off that role as Koskov. The way he's so overly affable and and friendly and 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 almost benign, but not. I mean, so so it, it is these sort of things where that I think the 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 misdirection, while it works well, is in the spy nature of it, in the action nature of it it sort of brings it down a bit and and which which probably makes it for some a, a little less memorable but uh i think 
as far as that's concerned, it makes the whole thing an adventure and, and the whole thing an interesting watch rather than just waiting for one action piece after another after another and a big finale to finish up with and and all the other talky bits are just stuff to fill up the space in between that's this is not this is this actually gives you a decent film all the way through with complex characters so let's stick on on the villainry because yes com- complex characters are, are definitely part of this probably a nice one part of dalton but terry if there is one good element of villain um and and uh, a villain that potentially might make some top lists um in in some ways um necros is probably one of the best henchman that i think we we've seen there is something about um anytime he's on screen that just brings a, a sh- little involuntary shudder down your spine yeah no he is i mean in view of the fact that he's just a bloke I mean, you associate Bond henchmen of having some kind of peculiarity, whether it be, a, you know, a, a hat or... A, well, I suppose he's got his headphones, isn't he, really? It's not, it's, it's not exactly a bowler hat, or it, not that it was a bowler hat. Not exactly a, a, a steel-rimmed hat or razor-sharp teeth or any of the other paraphernalia that henchmen, henchmen can often have. It's just a, a, an extremely a, a ruthless and efficient assassin with his exploding milk bottles. And I mean, he's sort of a uh, he's he's something of a of a of a opposite number to James Bond. I mean, he's 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 young, energetic, capable, uh, able to blend in despite his enormous frame. And um, and yeah, menacing, menacing, but also really, you know, he's he's he participates in one of the coldest um, and one of the most horrific deaths in any James Bond franchise. I'd say one of anyway when 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 he assassinates Saunders in Vienna, which is a, a, an extremely effective and very powerful scene uh, in general. And he works that little smirk he, he offers just before pressing the button, the fact that he clearly enjoys his work. You know, he revels in his work. He's not just about his his cause, whatever that may be. Make him, makes him particularly memorable. Uh, the things that are missing, I think, um, from Necros is that there's not, you don't necessarily get that, short brief moment of chemistry between him and bond uh they obviously do have it out in the end but it's there's so much going on in that final fight sequence with necros that it's difficult to you know there's usually some kind of relationship of some description so either an incredibly personal fight or battle of some description or and it doesn't have to be much but it's usually something and there isn't you don't get that with necros and bond this is not the end of the world of course and he gets a bit more screen time and a bit more to do as well as a, as, as, a, as a as a consequence though so all round yeah he's an extremely memorable uh, uh, henchman and i look forward to discussing him further when we do our world cup of henchmen <laughs> that whole milkman scene though it is for me is reminiscent of the avengers isn't it it's 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 totally it's totally in that sort of frame isn't it you can just imagine him turning up at steed's house can't you yeah, well, it is because there because it gets it's very English pastoral, isn't it? Early yeah. in the early in the film, where they go out to the to the safe to play in the safe house, and 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 therefore immediately rem- reminds you of 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 the Avengers, which was like very pastoral as a, a, a as an image. And so yes, and yeah, the idea of of uh, of of yeah strangling someone with headphones does sound like something that Brian Clemens would come up with no, and indeed so does exploding milk bottles sounds like something Brian Clemens the guy who wrote the avengers would would also come up with 
In fact, there may well actually be an episode of the Avengers in which someone does use exploding. Uh, I, I'm sure buttons, there so. is. I'm sure there I'm is. I'm pretty certain there is. <laughs> but he's great in it, actually. Uh, Andreas Wisniewski um, uh, as Necros. And you can see he comes from a background of being a dancer just by the way he moves and the way he fights as well. Those ultra high kicks he gets in, in a very, very small, small space. Uh, we love small, uh, small space melee, don't we, in Bond films? And, and that, that fight in the, in, in the kitchen is brilliant. The kitchen. It's really, really, Because that really butler brilliant. didn't take any, that butler didn't stand for any nonsense. He wasn't just a butler, was he? I mean, you'd expect a Secret Service butler to be like that, wouldn't you? But I've got a feeling that maybe he's kind of a, like a retired double O or something like that. Who's like a, like, I, or, or, or probably like ex, ex-Marine or ex-SAS who's sort of like, you know, they, who, 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 and they all work in there. I suppose that would, that would make sense, wouldn't it? But yeah, that was a that was a cracking fight. That was, yeah, especially with the with the uh, electric carving knife. You know, very eighty yeah. touch there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was, that, and and it's also quite nice as well. I, I would say nice. It's a really brutal scene, but it's also the kind of scene that you couldn't really carry off with between Necros and and Bond because Bond would have to win and he obviously couldn't get his face scarred or in any way shape or form and and that made it a really really brutal scene one of you know probably one of the highlights from an, an action and, and fight sequence and Graham the other one obviously that we've touched on is that that final fight scene with Necros in the plane is is something that is worthy of pretty much some of the best Bonds in, in my view it's it's one of the best sequences of um, fight end fight sequences I can think of in a Bond film. It is utterly breathtaking. I, I watch it now and I think you cannot do this anymore. You you cannot do that fight scene anymore. You cannot get a guy. You cannot get two guys clinging to some rope, hanging out the back of a plane. God knows how many thousands of miles in the, uh, thousands of feet in the air. It's it is ridiculous. You see the way he gets back onto the plane. He's almost it's almost body slammed, well head slammed right into the tailgate of that plane. It is it is ridiculous what what actually happens when when there and when you see the interviews with the guys who do it, uh, a couple of American guys. I I don't know if they were the same guys who did the um, uh, the opening sequence to Moonraker. It wouldn't surprise me if it was, but it was like the, basically these these stunt. Uh, parachutist, a couple of American guys, and and the way that they were they were doing it, where they were saying like how how they could actually signal to 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 the crew when they were ready to come in or not, but they were so basically they they couldn't really do anything, they couldn't be directed at all because basically they were just hanging on for their lives, and it was just and and the whole thing as soon as the the uh, payload was released they had a special wire to 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 release the 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 all, all the 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 drug pa- uh, packages but of course when they did that it started bucking around like nobody's business and they were they were in danger of being thrown against either the plane or the or the or the or the, or the, uh, or the tail um so it, and that's all captured on film and <laughs> it's just incredible it's just jaw jaw dropping you watch it closely and you, you think God, this—they don't really know what's going to happen here, do they? This is this is just a couple of guys just just being sent on the back of a back of a plane. This is like like Buster Keaton stuff, <laughs> not knowing what what was going to happen, and just just filming it. Yeah, it's extraordinary. Um, at Secrets, I remember first watching it, 
and being utterly incredulous uh, and just thinking this this is what the what is what on earth is happening here this is amazing and almost I think thinking but it's not fake it's not special effects it's not you know this is these they these are two guys hanging off the back of a of, of a hercules this is incredibly dangerous the audacity of the of uh, to, to come up with that i mean and it's it it's 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 the high point of the james bond of the, of the james bond of the james bond stunt work isn't it yeah that and 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 probably yeah obviously the 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 the, the um the airborne fight in moonraker uh, is 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 another one, and of course the spy who loved me uh, uh, skiing off the cliff. But for me, I think that this eclipses both of those because it's just such, simply such an audacious conflict. They've concept. They've just said what we'll do is we'll 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 have the fight with them hanging on to the netting out the back of of, of Hercules while it's flying, and that's someone came up with that idea. Clearly, the person who didn't have to do it themselves, <laughs> and 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 to 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 bring that about is extraordinary. And Graham's right. It simply would not happen now, and probably, in fairness, for good reason. Um, it, it, it probably isn't right <laughs> that people should be put in such in such peril for the sake of entertainment. But it is worth pointing out that, that, that you know that the, the, the world is not exactly short of extreme sportsmen and women who will go to extraordinary lengths to test themselves and get a real kick out of that sort of thing. So there's no suggestion whatsoever of exploitation. But I would just suggest to you that the insurance premiums alone would would would, would prohibit it um, and it's lost because i mean you know we, we've, we've seen similarly audacious uh, uh, uh secret action sequences subsequent to that done with cgi and it and i don't care what you say it is not the same it isn't the same because your brain is you you you're when you when you watch that sorry to bang on about this but when you watch that fight sequence you know what you're seeing is real you just know it's real because that's what stops you from saying how ridiculous the whole thing is, because in many ways it is an utterly ridiculous concept, but it's actually happening. It's not being, this is not elaborate. There's a bit of stage work with Tim Dalton, the close ups, obviously, but I mean, you know, the exterior shots like bloody hell. I mean, that is, that is seriously audacious. Yeah. It's, it's a hell of a scene. And also, um, fairly uh, obvious one to, to talk about as well with you terry is just it's for me as well it's really well soundtracked as well and and i get that throughout the entire film as well not only do you have these amazing sequences but the, the score for me is just spot on in terms of the way it uses music the way it kind of brings ratchets up the menace the way it brings back the musical devices when you've got various different um see scenes as well there is I mean, I don't know whether I mean I know that you you you're a man who will listen to to a lot of scores. I don't know if it's one you'd listen to over and over again, but as a score for a film, it just works. Well, it 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 was a again in a way it was a breath of fresh air because because Barry had added, added a little bit of extra energy. The eighties it up a little bit, made it a little bit, introduced a few more beats to make it sound a little bit more contemporary. I think to reflect the fact that there was a new James Bond. But the movie is very musical. Of course, music is kind of at the core of this of this movie. Cara Cara is a cellist. You know, they they escape. They, they, it features it stars the Stradivarius. You know, it, and and the Stradivarius plays an important role. 
in 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 their absconsion uh, from Czechoslovakia, as you as you have repeatedly pointed out down the years uh, when doing this podcast, Gary. So music is a big part of this, not just the score, but music in general is a big part of this movie, and it's very gratifying to see at the end of the film. The, the the orchestra being conducted by John Barry and what turned out to be his final movie and it's very fitting but it is it is it, it just added a little bit extra because of you to kill as much as I enjoyed the score to that film it it's it, it was a little bit ordinary um and 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 didn't offer anything really that new whereas I think that that Barry's living daylight score his final score had some additional energy that, that that the previous one had lacked, and 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 I that was certainly that was my feeling at the time when I watched the movie, and it's something that I've carried on. Other people will have different views because they probably look at the film coming from a different emotional place that, that, than I did. Um, uh, but but that's certainly my my view about it, and it's extremely memorable. The 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 moment when the Harrier is ascending, um, you know, it, it, it's is it's got a, a really barnstorming cue there that, that that goes along there. The 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 Gibraltar chase is an excellent introduction, you know, to the movie, and of course the 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 the, the songs. The, not not just not just the score, but you know, Chrissy Hines' two contributions to that. If there was a man, and where has everybody gone? And of course, the Living Daylights. Aha. What a tune, Terry. Do do yeah. you think do you think that the the soundtrack is more in keeping with the with what we're seeing at the time as well? A bit more of a return to the sort of string based orchestral stuff rather than electronic or or more contemporary sounds that you'd get in in film sound soundtracks. It is still a continuation from the, from a from a, a view to a kill. But it's just got a little bit more energy to it, got a bit more punch to it. I think, in, 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 so particularly in, in the in the uh, in the chase sequences and in the action sequences. I'm trying to th- think about movies about wh- about where we are at that time. I mean, I think there's a a very interesting conversation to be had about Michael Kamen's score in the following movie, because I think that is much more in line with contemporary action movies. Than, than than John Barry stuff is. John Barry by this point, of course, remember is winning Oscars and stuff like that for Out of Africa around this time, and he is producing some of his best work. And it's just slightly out of kilter with the kind of James Bond stuff, which he's probably only doing James Bond because they probably ask him nicely, or maybe they pay him in cash. I don't know. You know, I mean, it, it, and, and 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 you know, it's it, he's kind of moved beyond that. He's 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 very much in the kind of Morris Jarre kind of mold by this point. He's like you know, proper Oscar winner. You know, doing much more highbrow work than 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 than, than James Bond movies, but. He's got a great relationship with Cubby Broccoli by this point. It's a shame it's his last one because he could have done more. I think it's a missed opportunity them not using him again for the next film, but we'll discuss that at the next at the next podcast. Mm, uh, definitely adds to it, and uh, yeah, three three cracking songs as well all the way through um, that he uses devices in there. So <clears throat> Graham, we've talked a bit about um, the you know the fact that this is a little bit more realistic that it's a bit more rounded out in some ways while still retaining bits of bond um one other thing that i think um that obviously has to be talked about as as well is the fact that you do have um a lot of characters who are very well rounded as characters and even though um cara played by miriam debout might not necessarily be a lot of people's favorite bond girl you can't deny that she's 
you actually get a real sense of who she is. She's not just there to make up screen time and as a pl- oh, well, she is partly a plot device, but she's there as a character in her own right. And it's probably one of the, out of all the Bond films, possibly other than, say, you know, you cas- Casino Royale on a Majesty Secret Service, where you actually get a real sense of the relationship that's developed between these two characters. Yeah, what, what, one of my favourite points in the film is where they go back for the cello. It's it it is and it and it and it certainly establishes the basis of the relationship where Bond, you know, he's on he's a spy on a mission. You know, this is this is international espionage now. No, we don't go back. They'll they're all, they're 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 they'll already know you've gone. <laughs> and the next thing we go, he's going back. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, uh, there is that great sort of scene of there of 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 her. And yeah, she's a complex character. Um in the in the in the book in the novel, um, which which the film follows very closely actually um, for about the first twenty minutes or so, uh, because that's 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 when you run out of material. It it, it pretty much ends with um, with Bond foiling the uh, the assassination uh, and then getting in trouble for 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 not for not killing her. Um, so it all just sort of disappears from that, but it. It is. I I think she she's a really good character, and so you can see a sort of changing direction for Bond girls. Uh, yeah, she still gets in her O James near near the end, but you know, baby steps. She's not just incidental, is she? She she is a key plot device, and and actually the um, probably the protagonist or antagonist for for several really really good sequences that that follow um within there it's it's hard to look at this film and think um yeah you know we want somebody different in there it just it the scenes and the the way that she's written just works advancing the plot in a way that um bond girls probably haven't for quite some time yeah the character comes across as being quite helpless and vulnerable and a sort of you know she cuz cuz Miriam Darbo's got that yeah, sort of like you know, wide-eyed, sort of like, sort of like, somewhat lost, sort of like, oh, I'm so frightened, and yet is perfectly capable of taking charge of the situations when, when required, and does so. She does so towards towards the end during the climax when she goes after goes after James twice, goes after James, insists on bringing the gang with her as well, and takes a leadership role. Graham's absolutely right to point out that that scene when when they go back for the for the cello. And he's and Bond is in in the in the car, just like going, "Why am I doing this?" And it is, and it, it's because, because and we recognise this because we all recognise this moment when we are when we're beholden to the people that we love to do things that we really don't think we should be doing, but we're doing them anyway because because we're because we're emotionally locked to this person, and that these are this is the skill of the movie in in, in deepening the not just the relationship between Bond and. And, and Kara, but also deepening the, the 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 character of Bond as well. That he's capable of feeling that of fi- of having that kind of connection, and and it goes back to the beginning of the movie when he when he sees you know a, a, another Bond, another time, another person would have just like done what he was ordered and just shot her, and that would be the end of it. But he sees her, recognizes her beauty, and is not willing to 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 to, to, to go any further because he clearly feel something's wrong and then it just develops and uh the the, the scene in the in in the mujahideen uh headquarters is also very moving and 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 this is a level of intimacy 
that that makes makes it far more realistic and far more believable and we talk about realism and, and and authenticity in this movie and and we think about it in terms of you know bursting balloons and getting angry and you know and being you know smoking and stuff like that but actually the real authenticity comes in 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 these kind of moments because actually this is where bond becomes a human being and 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 this is what elevates this movie above amongst uh, uh, above others and it's 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 not the only movie that does it but there are not as many as there should be i suspect Mm, that that scene in there there's i was watching that and there is one line which i don't think certainly i couldn't see either uh moore or connery or probably even brosnan pulling off which is when um cara starts hitting bond with a pillow and basically calls him a horse's ass and in any other um with a lot of other bonds you'd probably expect just there would be a wry remark and he would just end up seducing her which obviously he, he kind of does <laughs> but it's just that very little tendered bit at there where he's just like sorry you you just called me what did you call me back end of horse you've just called me a horse's ass and then there's just that little moment that just breaks it and then there's a laugh and it's it's those bits which i think take it from you expect bond to sudden to sit there and seduce the woman and sometimes it just comes some most ridiculous bits where he's just like oh, really could you not have tried a little bit harder here but that one actually feels like it's a genuine argument that two people who genuinely quite like each other probably would have had and again those those little elements that are in there but they, they, the, the 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 other sequence that's that's important as well is, is when, when bearing in mind Kara, obviously quite ambiguous when it comes to you know her partners and stuff like that falling for James Bond despite the fact that she's actually on her way to sexually meet up with her boyfriend and there's no there's no sort of like gambit there's no there's no judgment coming from the filmmaker of this there's there's no judgment being encouraged from the audience of this and the switch around when when Koskov persuades Kara to betray Bond and then she realizes quickly she's being duped that is more believable because you can see the development of the relationship and you can see that she has reason to trust and believe Bond, even though the guy she trusts and believe more is telling her something different. And that all works around, well makes the whole thing more engaging, I think, for the audience and more, more interesting and, and more entertaining. Mm. <clears throat> well, we're talking about entertainment. Perhaps let's. Um, we talked about the uh, the sequence in in the uh, Mujahideen um, temple, and Graham. I think that that kind of goes into possibly one element that a few people might find a little bit problematic, which is um, Bond in Afghanistan. Whatever <laughs> do you mean, Gary? Well, yeah, <laughs> it, it is. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Um, yeah, you, pe- modern viewers uh, <laughs> who have who've only really been paying attention to what's been happening to the world since September the 11th um, might wonder what our relationship was like with Afghanistan during the uh, during the 1980s. Um, but but this this film really does sort of expose quite a lot of things about what uh, what we thought about the old world back there back then. Um, now this actually comes before Rambo three, doesn't it? So I suppose yeah. if you compare the two, then I think I think this one probably comes off a little bit better. Would you not say that, Terry? 
I'd say if you're in a position where you're where you're looking where you're looking for your you're looking for salvation in Rambo three, then you're you know you haven't got a chance. It's probably just best to acknowledge that this is yeah. All right, all right, it's terrible. Okay, well, but the, the thing was, uh, yeah, back then, back then the the Taliban were freedom fighters and they went to Oxford. Um, so, but yeah, um, and they could get through uh, Austrian. Um, uh, uh, security with their bullet belts over around them still uh, it was a different world back then Graham. different, different world. world different world different world <laughs> so you many could... things were acceptable in the 80s i know you could take you could take two liter bottles of coke on on the on the plane and everything um <laughs> yeah uh well I don't, I don't know what you say i think it's actually they're actually really well done i mean i love the 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 raid on on the airport all on horseback i i love i, I think that's brilliant it, it really comes back to the old sort of western days uh for me um but yeah you're right like uh, the art malik is great in it and in in the role with the and and he's but he's he's very much a a more era contact isn't he so what do you know of cameron shah bond <laughs> <laughs> It's just so funny because right at the end, when like you know Cameron Shaw sort of like you know says, "Oh, they're, they're, they're waving as they're leaving on the plane," like, "Yeah, see you in twenty years for completely different reasons," you know, <laughs> but, and we forget how close all of that, all of that is. But yeah. but yeah, it, it, it's because obviously, yeah, that a lot of those guys, the Mujahideen, were they became part of the Taliban, and 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 you know we went back to war fighting those guys about 20 odd years later and and it brings on a completely different um perspective but graham's right to point out i mean like they're 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 fun sequences they're clearly the good guys you could probably have uh good conversations about racial stereotyping uh, and they would be interesting conversations and i think you'd be on a very very sticky wicket if you were to try and defend the movie uh, on that basis but i think in the context of it being a james bond film made in 1989 um i think it just about pulls it off a, a lot of it because art malik is such an excellent actor um and pulls off the role with tremendous panache um uh, that that and, uh, and in the privileged position from where i sit i i have no difficulty whatsoever with these with with this this part of the movie while acknowledging that for some it will be difficult and problematic yeah, it definitely shows um, probably how far Bond, the Bond franchise has come since Octopussy, which um, is we've obviously discussed in a previous podcast, which is a, a film that I enjoyed, but um, is inherently much, much more problematic when you talk about British colonial attitudes. At, at least this has. Well, again, if you take it as a movie that's grounded in the very late 80s and the realism of what was going on in the late 80s and don't try and take it much more from there, um, then it, it it works, providing you probably don't try to overanalyze geopolitics that have happened since the late 1980s in that part of the world. Um, but yeah, I'd agree with Graham as well that uh, just there's so much to enjoy about the sequences that are shot there, not least the the, the brilliant action set piece that you have um, with the raid on the airbase. And also, let's not forget as well, the, uh, the fight in the Javis cell as well is, again, like Graham, we've talked about how much we love a good short space, uh, confined space fight. This is a lovely little confined space fight. Uh, it, it is. It's brilliant. Uh, the name of the actor is a Liverpudlian actor that escapes me now. Um, but he 
uh, he, he he's brilliant as the jailer who uh, I did not tell you to get down. I did not tell you to get up, and the, and he, he's brilliant in it as with his his very very uh, very interesting Russian accent. I, I think it's probably from uh, Lake Baikal. I think uh, it's, it's, it's 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 Eastern Siberian. I'm I'm pretty sure. Um, <laughs> But uh, he's he's brilliant in it, and and just turn up and just just one of those those little cameo of, of a few minutes. And this is this is another thing that I love about this film is there's so many little bits in it um, that you can pick out and say that's great, that's great, that's great, and and it, it's just just more. I mean, even this is it's just something that could have easily have been left on the cutting room floor. Um, and I think that actually the only thing I, I can I know of that was definitely left on the cutting room floor was the the magic was the flying carpet scene, which I don't know if you have you seen have you seen that guys mm. the, the flying carpet scene it's yeah, yeah if, if you look up on Google flying carpet living daylights it, 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 you'll enjoy yeah it's in the extras in the uh, in the Blu-rays as well <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah I mean I I will be honest I actually only seen that. Uh, when I most recently watched it a couple of days ago, so I was going through the extras. I think that that is a cracking scene. I love that scene. I totally understand why it was not it was dropped because it does look, but just like, and it, I think it kind of might have. It was it was pure Roger. Oh God, yeah, that scene. And I I, yeah. I suspect also. I mean, John Glenn said he would he, he left it out because it just was too slow and it just didn't didn't work. And and obviously he's the expert. That is what he thinks. And that's yeah. If it's too it slow is. though, in the past they would have just they would have just undercranked it, wouldn't they? Yeah, but you can't know. We, we are all, we, there's a bit of undercranking in the very very early stages of, of, actually, of Living Daylights, but there's a bit in the plane as well when she's in the when she takes over the the the, you're the, right. the flying in there as well. A little tiny bit of it there as well. Yeah, yeah, you're right. But we're, but it's being seriously discouraged by this yeah. point because it's yeah. so obvious. Um, and I, yeah, I think that it wouldn't. It, it, you're right; it wouldn't have worked. But also, I wonder if they might have just thought, "Well, no, this just doesn't square with the rest of the movie." Yeah. But the, the the little salute to the to the to the to the, to the, to the, to the Tangier stoners. <laughs> it's like really, really, Gary, you've not seen it, so 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 look it up and Gary, it's very much uh, hover gondola going across St Mark's Square. Excellent. Just from what you were describing, so yeah, I haven't seen that. I was just like, this feels like something that Roger would have carried off with a plum. <laughs> and uh, just just to go back, sorry, Gary, quickly, uh, Ken Sharrock is the, the actor the who guy. played the jailer, and he was in a ton of stuff. Yeah, um, on on British TV, so we have almost certainly seen him uh, a number of times. But oddly enough, I'm not seeing Brookside on here, which is. For international I'm... listeners, was a Channel Four soap opera long running, the set in Liverpool. <laughs> oh no, I like two episodes. Of yeah, yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I was I was about to say, are you sure this man is a Liverpudlian? If he hasn't <laughs> appeared in Brookside. <laughs> um, I mean, like, so we've gone through an awful lot. We've picked out the bits that we really like. Um, and Terry, I know where you, you're going to come from overall because I think you and I have a very very similar feelings about the Living Daylights, but. Um, as an entry point into into Bond with Tim Dalton in there, um, what's your overall feelings towards what Dalton brings to the film and, and the film itself? I, I know mine. I genuinely enjoy this film. I will happily sit down and watch it any time. It, it's one that I will never, never say no to at all. Um, where, where do you kind of stand on it overall and, and how 
the changes that Dalton has, has brought in as a very different type of bond. Yeah, I don't, I don't know where, um, I mean, I, I, because I think, I think whenever I get asked these kind of questions about these movies, I think about the World Cup of Bond films and think, where would, where did it sit there? But then I have to remember that is a, a, a joint decision that we that we arrive upon and I can't quite remember um this movie has to rank amongst my favorite James Bond films um one because of the impact that it had on me when I first saw it which is always very very important um, but also because it it does in its own way and in, in view of the limitations and how some of the the, the plot points are, are somewhat dated it's held up extremely well. It's got a, I think, a very authentic and a very strong female lead. Um, Dalton is supreme as Bond, with the exception of the one-liners. And if they had, they had just doctored the script a little bit more, they could have they could have ironed that out as well quite easily. Not, I don't think you can blame the actor there. His chemistry um, with M is superb. I'm not a big fan of Caroline Bliss as as, as Money Penny, uh, but 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 he made that work. He was brilliant with Q. All the scenes that he was in with the different actors and the different characters, he was able to strike up a relationship with them. We haven't really talked about the 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 Euro the, the Koskov and Bond sequences. Um, and they're magical. They're absolutely. There's. There's. They. They work really, really well. Even to the point where there's when when the when you know the veils have been the veils been lifted and we're seeing we're seeing the truth of the of the plot and that and and the, the way he's he's able to develop the re- relationships bet- with with some of these characters throughout the course of the movie, which is not easy in a big high energy action set piece movie. You know, and, and there's a sense of development of a relationship between him and Koskov, with him and Kara, and him and Saunders. And I like those scenes with Saunders. And Saunders starts off as being a really stiff-necked twat, and and of course, being because the audience is being buttered up for his gruesome, gruesome murder. You know, he becomes, you know, he becomes, you know, a, a cool guy. And and you know, Dalton's on board with that, and Bond is on board with that, and helps that. And I think that he's, he's he's got the right amount of menace, uh, while at the same time there might amount of humour that fits the contemporary James Bond. I think he's brilliant, and I love, I like the the, the two villain thing. And although he, the trade off is yeah, you don't necessarily get as strong a Bond villain as you might do with other movies, but it's worth the payoff because it's worth the trade off because we get a nice misdirect which we don't often see in a James Bond film, and that is nice. And it's just got that. It's, it feels like it's got a substantial plot, and it feels like an authentic spy film as well. And and, and it's got a kick-ass action sequence and a spectacular stunt work. It's, it's, it's pretty much got the lot, Living Daylights, I'd say. Mm, it's, there's, there's so much to like about it, and I definitely agree as well with that, that kind of trade-off. And it's also a very unusual... Bond film, um, almost that it harks back to some of the Connery era films in that we've talked before about Bond being one step behind the villains. And at this, in this, he almost certainly is. He just doesn't quite know what the end game is here. He suddenly uncovers another bit of the plot and another bit of the plot. And that's something, um, again, I've got a lot of love for the Moore era, but that's something that was was lost. There was an awful lot of 
early signposting, shall we say, within a lot of the Roger films, certainly the later more films, whereas this one, you genuinely don't quite know who to trust or, or what's going on, which is... Um, which is always nice that you're you feel like you're going on the journey with Bond as much as as he is, rather than just going look out for that, James. Oh well, that was a well, didn't see that one coming, did we at all? Hey, that matters <laughs> unlocked. <laughs> <laughs> but there's also a lovely bit of misdirection as well with um, the in that that amazing plane fight sequence at the end. You've got that kind of cutting back to the rope about to snap, and you're obviously thinking, "Yep, this is going to be another massive moment of peril." And in the end, it, it's something that doesn't actually happen, but it builds it up and it's a very, very nice There, there, there is a little There, there is a bit of, of too much peril in that because you've got the, the rope, you've got them <laughs> flapping around on the back, which is bad enough. And then, and then you've got the rope that's fraying and you've got a bomb. And she's at the wheel. <laughs> do, do, do you want to add some more peril? <laughs> <It's> like, <laughs> this is definitely not um, something that would be classified as having scenes of mild peril in. It's quite extreme peril all the way through. Um, Graham, your, your thoughts in terms of um, kind of summing up with, with the living daylights. Now that we can look back on it, and I think um, it's probably fair to say we all think it stood the test of time. But um, how has it how has it stood for you from you know seeing it as as one of your first Bond films um, at the cinema as a as a full grown adult to to now looking back on it um, you know a little over thirty years later? I think if you look at it with with the benefit of of historic hindsight, they really lucked out on this one because although they they, they did really well and they come up with a great film and yes it's full of misdirections. But that doesn't mean you you won't get pleasure out of it watching it again and again, which is really important because there's a lot of films that have twists in that once you know the twist, it's not worth going back and watching the film. But this one is is, is great because it's it's not completely turning the film on its head. It's just, as you say, you're going through this with Bond. You never know more than Bond. Uh, but then again, you uh, you don't know much less than him either. So it's a wonderful journey of a film. But I think they lucked out because this is the last Cold War Bond film. Uh, The Cold War pretty much ends in in 1989, doesn't it? And and by the time Licence to Kill comes out, it's it's pretty much done. Um, But this is the last one that they get when when the Cold War is actually something that's actually meaningful. and so they get this story in just in time. When you look at it, when they return to, to very similar themes and, and very similar sort of characters in Goldeneye, you're very much entrenched in that 90s with one element of, of the spy genre. The, the whole thing that, that dogged the whole of, of the Brosnan era when there were no more enemies out there, supposedly, until... Let's go back to the Afghanistans uh, again. This is a wonderful snapshot in time. This is this is a point where it's it's almost like you've you've reached the end of the road with Bond. Although it's the start of a new chapter for Bond, it's almost it's almost the end as well because it's the end of the Cold War. Something that they could draw upon. And as Terry said, you know earlier about the fact that um, they never 
really went too heavy on the Russians. So you'd, you'd get things like Gogol was was that that lovely sort of arm around saying, "Yeah, it's not you. It's the bad generals, isn't it? It's not it's not you guys because we know you're actually a very valuable um, market actually for us. So so we're not we're not we're not going to we don't hate you for it." Um, but I, I always think that 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 Russians would have looked at Bond and thought, well, you know, post-war spy that went to Cambridge, he's obviously one of ours, isn't he? <laughs> yeah, it's. Um, I mean, for me, um, my feelings on on living daylights are that I, I'm. I think Terry almost exactly described it. it it's certainly one of my favorites it's a film that i have an awful lot of affection for and um like both of you i don't quite remember where it ended up in a world cup of bonds although in fairness i think we got through two bottles of port by that stage uh, which is uh, which may account for our slightly hazy memory below the top four but it is it is a really strong entry it is a film that i think very neatly says yep yeah, there's bits of bond that you know and love but this is a very different bond this is a bond that um that is not like uh not like roger with his raised eyebrows and uh, and uh, having a nice little sort of uh, bucolic travel log and battling a few bad guys this is something that's got real grit within it so yeah i would also say that out of um out of all the bonds, outside of, of the ones that I think we all put in, on the top for our, our kind of pedestals of the best ones, this one isn't too far behind. And, and in truth, it's probably as a favourite, it's one that I will happily return to. And I was sat down um, a couple of nights ago to rewatch it. And I sat down and I just went, I've enjoyed this completely. This has just been a brilliant, wonderful evening of watching a very, very good film that has stood the test of time which you can't always say with a lot of Bond films. So, yeah, it's um, there's many different kind of questions that would have come up from here. What would a Brosnan or a Neil look like at this stage with the Living Daylights? How would might that have changed the franchise in different ways? But, um, again, like Terry, um, I, if there's a world without Dalton films, then uh, as James Bond, I do not want to live in them at all because this is, this is an excellent entry, I think, into the canon. And... Um, yeah, Graham, it's going to be, obviously, we've, we've given love, and I think if uh, hopefully listeners who perhaps maybe have been a, a little bit unconvinced or maybe haven't watched Living Daylights recently might be encouraged to give it a go again, which I really hope so. But, uh, yeah, the next pod's going to be a slight shift in tone for the next film, I think. Yes, indeed. I mean, it would be very interesting to see how we, what, how we uh, assess that one. I really like Licence to Kill. It's a film that I hadn't watched for a long time. But when I watched it again, I thought, why has it been so long since I've seen it? And I hope you two uh, guys think of it the same. One question before we leave this this film, though, and I want to ask you two, is what's your favourite Timothy Dalton film outside of the Bond? Flash Gordon. Gordon, it's alive! Oh. You freeze, you bloody bastards! It, it, it's either that or, or, or it's Rocketeer, isn't it? Rocketeer is an amazing film. I haven't seen Rocketeer actually in a very, very long time. I keep It's on Disney Plus and oh. I keep meaning... It's on Disney Plus, yeah. I keep meaning to sit down with the missus who's never watched it oh. and who loves 80s movies. Oh. Um, Rocketeer is just such a lovely, warm and fuzzy... It's one of those classic warm and fuzzy 80s movies. Yeah, that, that people of a certain from a certain generation just like just adore. It, it's, and bathe it's, in. it's got a dangerously young uh, Jennifer Connelly in it, though, isn't it? 
Uh, I, I don't, well, I don't think I should be allowed to watch that film. Let's not sunny the moment, <laughs> shall we, Graham? At all with, with this, with this um, inappropriateness. But I mean, I, I'm still, I'll stick with Flash Gordon because it's just an, an immense film. I must confess, there's not that many that I've no. seen more beyond that. If I'm being no. completely honest no, with you, I don't know how many. I, I would go with Hot Fuzz. The uh, I forgot even that Fagan. film. Yeah, Frost, I love that he. That he was, he's the villain in that, and then you've got Pierce Brosnan is is has a cameo as the villain in the World's End as well, which is the uh, the final part of the Cornetto trilogy. Um, and I just love his performance in the Hot Fuzz because he just um, hams it up um, as much as he can, and he's clearly having an awful lot of fun at that point. And he's gone from James Bond to manager of a village supermarket, which is um, just, you know, an entertaining career arc, if nothing else. It also has one of my favourite um, lines of any uh, any film in there, which is, uh, you want to be a big man in a small town, fuck up, hop to the model village. <laughs> which is, is probably one of the best lines that, that has been committed to film. Um, but yeah, so that's mine, certainly within there. And Yes, I'm I'm greatly looking forward to License to Kill. It has been a while as well since I've watched it, but I know there is one thing that we will be that we can cue up our listeners for, Terry, is that one of the great things about License to Kill that we'll get on to in the next one is a lot more cue. Tons more cue, I know, and it's great, isn't it? And it works really, really well. And it's got the best cue line in the entire history of James Bond in it. And I'm sure all the listeners know exactly what it is. Uh, are you yes. sure? Are you, you sure? are you sure? Are you sure, Terry? Are you sure? Right, well, what's... Dude, by all means, suggest suggest another. The, I mean, you know, it's not an exact science. I mean, maybe I'm wrong here. Maybe later. <laughs> no, it's uh, later, perhaps. You know what I meant. <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I know. I know. I know exactly what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. No, that is a good. That is a good line. Yeah, that's true. But no, yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and you know, I never joke. I never joke about my work. 007 is also among among the greats. But if we were to do a World Cup of Q lines, and we shouldn't, then I, I think you know, exploding Bonus alarm clock is bank signing. <laughs> we should just we should just spend do a whole podcast where we just spend a whole hour just reciting q lines from q and nothing else just out of context q (laughs) i might have to be a two-parter that one podcast a q podcast yeah no that's that's that is something we'll we'll put that on that we'll put that on the running order then at some point Yes, I think uh, only fair given uh, given the joy that Desmond Llewellyn um, brings to it, and and that's why I'm as much as anything else. That's why I'm looking forward to to license skill. I hope, dear listener, that uh, that you're looking forward to it as well. Um, so yeah, if you haven't watched Living Daylights in a while, go back watch it, and hopefully you enjoy and and love it as much as we do. Um, and yeah, I'm I am looking forward to License to Kill. Um, some people may not, but I certainly am. Um, and I, I suspect my two co-hosts are very much looking forward to it as well. Um, but in that, it just remains me to say, um, yeah, thank you again. Please do. Uh, if you don't already subscribe to us, please do subscribe in your podcast uh, listening app of choice, uh, whether that be Apple or Spotify, or even if you've still got an old fashioned RSS that just pulls it in somewhere in there, please do go ahead. Um 
and and you can also catch us on all the usual social media as well um but until that time um gentlemen i look forward to uh, to welcome you again in isthmus city in uh, in the next podcast um until then goodbye goodbye goodbye